the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, chowing down on Klein Bottle Tortellini and Mobius Strip Donuts leads to a warp in the fabric of dinner time itself. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a very special show that we recorded live at the Life, the Universe, and Everything Science Fiction Conference in Provo, Utah. It was great to get out there and attend, plus I got to visit with Larry Correa, DJ Butler, Eric James Stone, and several other Bain writers, plus loads of Bain book readers at the Bain Traveling Roadshow. At the LTUE, we had a mobile Bain free radio hour podcast with a live audience. That was so much fun to do. It was great to get questions from the audience. My guests were DJ Butler, author of the great historical fantasy novel Witchy Eye, Witchy Winter, and the Witchy War Saga, and Eric James Stone, author of science fiction novel Unforgettable. So that is coming up. Now here's the news. The February E-Arcs are here. Now an E-Arc is the curved portion of a sharpened ski used by vampire hunter ski patrols when raiding famous Utah ski resorts such as Moonbird. You know, the one over there by the famous film festival attended only by vampires, Blood Dance, and staking their claim to the slopes. No, 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 that's not it. An E-Arc is actually an electronic advanced reading copy. We offer these e-books early for you to purchase, so you can get the latest from your favorite author or try out something new early before the print date, sometimes quite a bit early, like three to four months early. The only caveat about the eARCs is that they sometimes have typos and some interesting little issues with them because it is post-editing but pre-proofreading. Out now in eARC form is The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. Hey, this is a new world, a new Weber offering. Dr. Benjamin Schroeder's life was as close to perfect as he could ever dream it would be. That is, until he has a psychotic episode that results in him having memories of a nightmare world that cannot be. A world in which there was a second world war, and it resulted in millions dead. A world in which nuclear weapons have proliferated around the globe. A world in which the Chinese communists succeeded. A world in which the Middle East is a festering sore of bloodshed, fanaticism, and terror. But of course none of that is real, or so Dr. Schroeder believes until a man knocks on his door one afternoon with an impossible and horrifying story. It's about alternate realities, time travel, and temporal knots. Now the fate of the universe rests on Schroeder's shoulders, and billions of lives across multiple dimensions hang in the balance. Also out in February is Noir Fatale E-Arc, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Zell. From the pulpy pages of Black Mass to the film noir era of the 1940s to today, noir fiction has lured many a reader and moviegoer away from the light and into the dark underbelly of society. And within the dark, one figure stands supreme, the femme fatale. 
Here now is Norfatal, an anthology containing the full spectrum of noir science fiction and fantasy. From hard-boiled science fiction detective stories to dark urban fantasy to the dirty streets of futuristic cities, here are tales with a hard, gritty feel and a shadowy femme to strike and twist the knife deeper. All new stories herein by Larry Correa, Laura K. Hamilton, and David Weber, Casey Ezel, and more. That's a it's a really cool anthology. And finally out now in EARC is By Demons Possessed by P.C. Hodgel. Something is preying on the gods of Titastagon. A crucial moment draws nigh, leading to the ultimate showdown between James North and Paramal Darkling, the supernatural entity that has pursued James' people across dimensions and universes, the Kinsir, destroying all in its wake. But now news arrives from the vast city of Titastagon. The new pantheon is failing, and the ancient city is in turmoil. But whatever demon-wrought madness is afoot in Titastagon will have to face the ultimate avatar of the god that which destroys. That would be James North. By Demons Possessed Eark by P.C. Hodgel, nor Fatal Eark, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Ezel, and the Gordian Protocol EARC by David Weber and Jacob Hollow are now available exclusively at Bane.com. You don't have to wait a single day longer. Get them, read them, now. I want to welcome DJ Butler and Eric James Stone to the podcast. Hey, fellows. Hey. Hey. Talk to you. Thanks for having us. Um, DJ Butler grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains after messing around for years with the practice of law. I think we have two lawyers here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dave finally got serious and turned to his longtime passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can on his coccyx. I mean, um, <laughs> <laughs> hold on, you got to say the whole word because you just made it sound much worse. <laughs> coccyx. Coccyx is where that was going. Right. <laughs> spends as much time as he can with his family. Uh, he is the author of City of Saints, Rock Band, Fights <coughs> Evil, Space Eldritch. Um, these are Word Fire Press, and I believe these are YAs, right? Yeah. Uh, some, of, some of it's YA uh, or adult, yeah. yeah. And now, from Bane Books, we have this great historical fantasy series that David has, has embarked on, um, set in an alternate past America. The series is, we're calling it The Witchy Wars? Yep. The Witchy Wars. And we have two novels out and one upcoming they are Witchy Eye, Witchy Winter, which is out this very month in mass market paperback. I'm pointing at it um, to our uh, to our studio audience here. Um, and uh, upcoming in August is going to be Witchy Kingdom, right? Yep. Which will appear in August of this year, which will sort of complete a first three book. That's the idea. Of the, yeah. Of the of the thing. Uh, by the way, I should mention that we are at the life. <laughs> The life, uh, universe, and everything, life, the universe, and everything uh, convention conference here in Provo, Utah. It's a wonderful convention conference uh, get together for all all sorts of people who like science fiction. Um, it's uh, I've been impressed with the quality of the audiences, and there, there's readers here. Yeah. And from all over the country, uh, right? Uh, people from Colorado and Texas, and even here in the audience, Florida. Uh, it's cool. It's a great. It's a. It's a. It's, it's really a, a wonderful uh, little little conference that I think um, that I think is a, a shining example of what should be a science fiction convention. From what I've seen so far, 
especially now that, that we're here. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric James Stone is a Nebula Award winner for a story that Leviathan, Whom Thou Hast Made, and uh, Hugo Award nominee, and uh, yeah, I think you've won other awards. Author of many great short stories, like 50 million or 50 uh, About something. 50. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's been in venues such as, uh, he's had a bunch in years past anthologies, he's been in Analog, uh, had things in Nature, Morrison Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. He lives in Utah with his wife Darcy, high school physics teacher, um, he's also the author of the most wonderful science fiction novel, Unforgettable, which I'm pointing out right now, out from Bain. And I saw in the dealer room, it's available at Barnes & Noble at their table in both trade paperback and mass market editions. So, um, and of course, all of our books are, are e-books as well. Um, Is it just a curiosity, not only we both have law school in our background, but we're also both married to writers? Because I think that Darcy won Writers of the Future six months ago. Am I thinking about this Last last year, she she won the grand prize in the Writers of the Future contest. I had been a winner uh, about uh, 14 years earlier, um, and I got second place in my quarter. She got first place in hers and then went on to win the grand prize. So her trophies are bigger than mine. (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's and pretty cool. Uh, and my wife's debut just came out from uh, Crown Books for Young Readers about three weeks ago, which is a Random House imprint. So family businesses. That's really That's cool. cool. Uh, your uh, what was the name of uh, of uh, your name's uh, Emily, right? Emily. Emily. What is what's the name of Emily's? Uh, it's called Freya and Zeus, and it's sort of if Ingmar Bergman wrote middle reader fiction, uh, <laughs> it would be that. That's not the pitch I would go with. <laughs> <laughs> For a middle grade novel? <laughs> well, okay, so yeah, so, okay. So, so briefly. Uh, so it's like this night that meets death, but yet it's all happy and joyful. It's actually, yeah, kind of like that. So, so in, in the real world, there was a Swedish uh, Arctic exploration uh, expedition that, that launched by balloon, uh, early 20th century, I think. Um, and, uh, and they miscalculated the effect of the cold air in the balloon, and they, they all, they disappeared. And we learned uh, decades later that what happened to them is that they had miscalculated the effect of the cold air on the gas. The balloon sank. They landed on an iceberg. The iceberg struck a rock north of the Arctic Circle, and they starved to death. And we we found this out because uh, one of the three men was a photographer. And so we found a bunch of undeveloped photographic plates, images of these guys starving to death on a bare rock, right? This is the actual background for Emily's story, which is about a penguin and a mouse who stow away on board the balloon and become friends as the humans are dying in the background. <laughs> Starred review from publishers, or from School Library Journal. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern <laughs> on this tragic uh, polar experiment. That sounds really good. That sounds cool. It looks really cool. I saw it, man. Um, it's got a beautiful color, so yep. that's, that's cool. Um, well, maybe we should talk a little bit about process with you both. Being married to, to writers, um, I, you know, I married an actress so that I wouldn't have to deal with another writer. <laughs> what, uh, what's it like, and, um, and how do you go about um, dealing with each other when you're, when you're both creative at the same moment? Uh, uh, well, I, w- I would say we generally aren't both creative at the same moment. <laughs> we take turns being creative. Um, especially since the, the, the birth of our, our daughter, Honor, who's named after Honor Harrington uh, from the David Weber series, and, uh, and then our, our son, Link. Uh, we, we, have to, we have to spend, you know, 
our writing time, basically one of us needs to be looking after the kids while the other writes. Yeah, it's, um, our kids are older, so so uh, the life cycle is a, a bit different, but but the answer is basically the same, and, and uh, it tends to be that one of us is being really productive writing and one of us is doing something else, uh, dealing with the school plays or make or making uh, you know the making making uh, the other part of our living, the part with more dollars. Um, Hold on a second. Oh, I forgot to mute my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I have back as my ringtone. <laughs> Anyway, we tend we tend to take turns. Yeah, right now I am writing quite a bit. Um, she's thinking about the next thing she'll write. Very cool. So, um, what do now? I know that both of you. Um, I don't, well, I don't know for sure with with you, um, but but both of you also have jobs that you've been working uh, most of your uh, life, building up to, um, as well as being writers. Um, how do you handle the? When do you write? And how do you pull it off? Well, well, uh, back when back when I was uh, single, uh, basically I would go home after work and just write. That was my uh, that was what I did <laughs> when I wasn't at, at work. Um, in order to do that, I had to give up playing EverQuest. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but um, then uh, the the first draft of Unforgettable I actually wrote when I was single and unemployed um, and that that really made my writing a lot more productive <laughs> um, but uh, I've, I've found that you know now that I'm married with kids finding the time and energy to write is, is a lot more difficult um, I didn't actually write very much for the first two years after our daughter was born, um, I've uh, since uh, in the past uh, five or six months, I've really gotten back into the writing groove. Yeah, kids can can really um, it, they must be tended to, right? Especially toddlers. So uh, maybe we should, let's talk about. Um, oh, Dave, can you? Oh, uh, elaborate on your. Uh, your I methods? do it whenever I can, and badly is sort of the answer. Um, there was a time for a couple of years when I wrote full time. I would take the kids to school and then I would sit down and write. Um, I'm very good at that. That's awesome. Uh, that is not now. Uh, what now time is, is I make a living as a corporate trainer and that is highly seasonal. And so I will spend two seasons of the year. It's like monsoon. It comes twice. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of like March, April, May, June. Uh, and I will, I can edit fine and I can get some writing done, but it's very hard to produce a novel. If you if your days consist of eight hours of training on your feet and then go to an airport and fly somewhere else, get to the hotel, check in for eight hours again the next day. Um, so, but then I have two off seasons, and the off seasons are sort of July, August, uh, and right now we're in an off season. Mm -hmm. So I am writing very productively right now. I'm writing. So you create. Um, have you seen this book by Cal Newport called Deep Work? It's uh, it, it, he he has the idea, and this is the sort of this is what Carl Jung, for instance, used to have to do. He used to just force himself into a sabbatical of, and, and cut himself off from his his day job of seeing patients constantly to write his work. Yeah. Um, having that, do you just, um, do you put other things aside and, and concentrate? Do you, are you able to put hours in? Uh, yeah. Right now, I'm I, in the last three weeks, I've written half a novel. Every, I'm writing, I get up and I write 12 pages a day, and, that's, and I don't have to worry about training until March. It's going to start in earnest, and that is just not a problem. 
and I should finish uh, this book basically about two weeks before I fly off to Minneapolis and start training. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I try to ask process questions. Every writer seems to have a different uh, different process, but it um, it comes down to being able to, to have moments, have, have long enough to think more than long enough to write. It's like to not be distracted long enough you can think. Um, is it, would that... Uh, I can, I, one of the nice things about thinking is I can do it uh, in places other than in front of the keyboard. Um, and, uh, you know, one of, one of the places where I have a lot of good ideas is in the shower. Uh, I think the, the the warm water, you know, just kind of helps my thinking process. Um, and uh, so I, I often think, of, I'm thinking about the plot and uh you know I, I oh oh that's what i should do and while i'm in the shower uh, i don't actually get around to writing it until quite a bit later but uh but yeah thinking about it in, in the car on uh, while commuting stuff like that mm. yeah. do your do short story ideas come to you more in the shower or or did <laughs> i'm i'm naturally a short story writer not a novelist um and so uh, yeah, I've had short story ideas pop out in the shower, pop out pretty much anywhere. Mm. We well, might take much longer showers if they, if you were a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take like, fairly long showers as it is. As it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, um, well, let's talk. Maybe let's talk. All right. So we have a um, fantasy novel and we have a science fiction novel. Um, that and let's talk about um, uh, Unforgettable for a moment. This is an incredibly uh, cool concept. Um, it's, but it's it's not a. It starts out as sort of a gimmick, and then it turns into a really fun action adventure book where we start really caring about the main character. Um, can you sort of say what the uh, the the basic idea of it is again? Yeah, the the basic premise uh, is it's about a CIA agent who can't be remembered more than a minute after he's gone, um, and uh, the basically. Uh, during the course of the novel, he uh, and some other people have to stop a supercomputer from being built that will take over the world. So, what? So, what's his name again? I'm trying to. Uh, uh, Nat. He's forgotten. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Nat Morgan. Yes, our hero. Um, he uh, he's been shaped by this power because this is where it gets gets to be a cool character novel. He's been shaped from the, by this power since he was a kid. What's it like to grow up as a kid, where people, your parents can't remember you? You have this. Yeah, that when I was, you know, came up with the idea at first, I you know had to think a lot about what his life would have been like uh, with this, and you know his his mom would forget about him. Uh, you know, she had to pin notes to him saying, "This is your son," uh, you know, stuff like that, and she kept detailed journals. Uh, you know, so, uh, so as so that there would be some continuity uh, in his life, but basically, it it was impossible for him to form a lasting relationship with with anybody, because you know if they don't remember him after he's gone, uh, it's like meeting them all over again. Yeah. And it's kind of sad, but he's he's found a uh, he's found a medium. He's found a way of, of existing, right? He, he's not an unhappy guy now. He's, 
Yeah, no, he uh, he finally decided to, to try to find a way he could use his talent for good and uh, ends up with a, an unusual arrangement with the CIA. Uh, his handler, you know, has to can't remember him. can't remember him, but keeps detailed notes again, and that that's uh, that's how he can keep an, an ongoing relationship somewhat. They call it what the Project Leith file. Um, yes. So every time he calls in, he has to because he couldn't just keep a post-it on his desk because he would say this is bullshit. There's nobody I can't remember. So he has to have some system that will that they go through um, a protocol, right? Right. The, so what what's the story? Um, what do they need um, Nat to do? Uh, well, uh, when it starts off, he's uh, stealing new quantum technology, quantum computer technology that's being developed. The, the, it's set in the the near future. It's it's definitely in the future. It doesn't ever say exactly how far in the future, but but quantum computing uh, is you know kind of uh, the the big thing that's going on, and various companies and countries are are racing to develop uh, more and more uh, powerful quantum computers. And the CIA catches wind of someone who's building a quantum supercomputer uh, known as uh, by the code name the Prophet uh, that they uh, that is meant to predict pretty much everything that's going to happen in the world uh, and naturally the the CIA wants that stopped. And we have a, a, a sort of bad guy, Iranian oil baron, mad scientist who's developing this? Is that, he, wants, he wants to get his mitts on it or? Yeah, um, the, the, it's being developed by a, an Iranian oil billionaire. Um, there's a, a scientist, an Iranian scientist who's actually being forced to work on the project he considers it blasphemous to be creating a computer called the Prophet, um, and uh, and so he 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 wants to defect, and Nat uh, has to help him. Which uh, is going to be hard because he can't remember. <laughs> Nat. Yes. So um, there's a lot of, I mean, obviously this is a lot of, and a lot of your work has a, a good strain of humor to it. Um, that is not James Bond. He keeps getting forced into these Bond-like situations, and he has to sort of figure out a way to use his, his peculiar... His power has a science fiction explanation, right? It's yes. Uh, you know, when I was thinking... Uh, when I came up with the concept for the character originally, um, I was trying to figure out how the, the power would work exactly. Um, and uh, I considered uh, some sort of biological explanation like pheromones that cause memory loss or stuff like that but that wouldn't operate over telephones and uh, and stuff like that and uh, so I uh, looked to, to quantum mechanics and uh, the kind of the the whole idea that a wave fun a probability wave function can collapse into different states um, and basically, the way his power works is that after he's gone, the probability wave function for everyone who interacted with him <clears throat> collapses to the state where they uh, he didn't interact with them. And so, <clears throat> there, uh, this power works basically on anything that's electronically based 
you know, because electrons operate at the quantum level. And so, so <clears throat> taking a photograph of him using, you know, a non-digital camera where it's stored on film, uh, if you develop it, 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 it will show him. Uh, but any kind of digital electronic records uh, just vanish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a really cool concept, and it's it's fun. Um, the way that he, we can't tell, tell too much about how he figures everything out because that's uh, we'll be giving spoilers. But um, it's 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 really a great read and a fun. Um, just the, you know, it's got a lot of sense of wonder in it at the same time as um, action adventure. Um, I don't know. You you found something there. Well, let's talk a little bit about witchy, the, the witchy eye book as well. Um, so, Dave, give us a uh, one sentence summary <laughs> of the entire milieu. Uh, can you give us a little pricey on on the world um, and the so. Um so the um, it's an ensemble cast, but the sort of central character is a 15-year-old uh, witch named Sarah, and Sarah is uh, smart and uh, and magically gifted, and funny and fiercely loyal and paranoid and xenophobic and mean. <laughs> and the story opens on the day of the tobacco fair in Nashville when Sarah and the Calhoun family youngins come down to sell the family crop. And Imperial Army officers try to kidnap her because Sarah has a history of which she was unaware. She's the hidden daughter, the secret daughter of the dead emperor, a dead empress, excuse me. And her, her uncle, her living uncle, the living emperor, has just discovered her existence and wants her put out of the way. So it is a, uh, some classic fantasy story tropes, really, is about her quest to, uh, she learned she has two siblings she did not know existed, that she's a foster child, she did not, and she didn't realize that. It's about her quest to protect, uh, find and protect those other siblings and recover the stolen power of her mother, uh, who was, uh, who was the empress, uh, and her father, who was a king of one of the western kingdoms. Um, the, the, the empress and the king of what? Yeah, so these, well, I'm getting there. So, uh, so the thing that's sort of really striking is that it's set in 1850 in America. So the, the, the dead empress uh, is, uh, uh, is Hannah Penn, mad Hannah Penn, whose brother Thomas had her unseated in the assembly of electors and then uh, put away for madness for the last 15 years of her life. Uh, and her dead father is uh, Curious Eleutharius, who was a war hero and a sacral king of one of the seven mound builder kingdoms of the Ohio, specifically uh, Cahokia, um, and who died mysteriously in the west uh, while patrolling the borders of his land in a sort of a folk legend. Uh, so it's, uh, so it's, it's, it's quest, it's fantasy, it's fairy tale set in a kind of, a kind of Jacksonian America. It's so it, yeah. It's uh, it, I mean that's the the really like cool twist is that we're imagining an America that's um, that's what if there had been this sort of folk magic and it worked and this is what might have happened. Right? Did, I mean it feels a lot to me like some Manly Wade Wellman sort of uh, influence uh, here, or or maybe um, I think you've said before that that great book about uh, abolition folklore. Um, 
to something of Albion. Albion Seed. Albion Seed. It's absolutely one of the key pieces that went into this. And I'm a huge Manly Wade Wellman fan. If you're thinking about like Silver John the Balladier, yes, yes. Uh, I'm I'm a, a huge fan. Um, part of the one of the fun things. So Sarah, as she develops her talent, uh, she has a kind of a tutelage under a under a monk uh, for the first book. Uh, practices magic at a very high and kind of theoretical and rarefied level uh, along principles of sympathetic magic uh, that is accessible to very few practitioners. And so what, what could she do? Well, so, uh, uh, what do you mean in terms of like things she actually does in the book or like how, how it operates? How there, what could she do with her magic? So you see her doing things like uh, deflecting uh, bullets, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, and and she has—I don't want to give away spoilers—but she turns out has some special gifts uh, involving vision or or sight. Mm. Uh, so uh, there are hints in the first book that you see much more fully in the second book that that not all magical practitioners operate at this high theoretical level, and some of them operate uh, in the actual folk magic systems of, of uh, 19th century and indeed 20th century America. Uh, there's a character named Lumen Walters in the second book who, uh, who is a kind of a magical thief, uh, embittered by his lack of the ability to operate at that, that grammarist, the, the high theoretical level. He uh, tries to learn various magical traditions. Uh, including, for example, uh, uh, German, the German Braukerei tradition, which is a, a kind of Christian folk magic or active prayer tradition. Um, yeah, and I mean, that, and that's a real thing that's throughout Pennsylvania and the. the and it's still there now. Yeah, yeah sure. you turn the corner in some of those towns, and, and and there's there's a practitioner there, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, so people sometimes talk about it as an alternate history that's not entirely right in, in that um, a classic alternate history takes a moment in time and says, ooh, the Battle of Actium, what if Antony won, right? Um, if there is a moment in time, it's somewhere back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, this, is, this is more of a kind of a, a parody of the world or a sort of a funhouse mirror to, to <coughs> all of world history. One of the one of the conflicts uh, one of the conflicts um, that recurs uh, in the series is that there are two races of humans. Well, actually, there are more, but there are two principal races of humans. And the word "human" doesn't appear. They use a biblical idiom to talk about it, so that everyone is a child of Adam, but you are either a child of Eve or you are a child of the other one, which is to say, uh, the serpent or the child of Lilith uh, or the child of wisdom. Uh, and uh, and uh, so so the sort of the politics and the bigotry around that are a theme. But the point is, it's not that I said, "Hey, what if the Thirty Years' War went differently?" The the what if is much more deeply in the bones than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It it's it feels sort of Tolkien-esque in that the way that he said he was making the 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 sort of archetypical history of England. You, this is sort of the archetypical history of. Of Appalachia and other magical norms of the that is exactly right. America. This is that's exactly right. This is my bid to be the American Tolkien. So Tolkien, <laughs> uh, but my my task is much bigger than Tolkien's. It's an insane task. I see. Uh, because because Tolkien uh, Tolkien wrote um, a mythic prehistory of England that is very 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 specifically Tolkien. It's Tolkien's 
mythology, including his Catholicism. His correspondence includes a letter to a Jesuit friend who says, no one's going to like this book, it's way too Catholic. Which is not the critique that's been leveled against <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, right? People have not noticed it. But in fact, it is extremely Catholic. Very Catholic. So, so when Samwise Gamgee, uh, or when, when Frodo wakes up in the House of Healing in Gondor, and he, he meets Gandalf. Gandalf says, uh, the men of Gondor will forever after remember March the 25th, for this is the day Sauron fell. Well, in the English medieval Catholic calendar, and Tolkien was a medievalist, March the 25th of the day of the crucifixion. Which means for Tolkien, Gollum takes the ring and falls into Mount Doom is the same day when Christ takes the sins of mankind and ascends to, uh, to the crucifixion. So Tolkien was writing this very personal mythology of England. And this is my very, inevitably me, right? It's all filtered through me. Yeah. Inescapably personal mythology of America, which is much, much bigger and more epic than England is. So it's a fool's task, and I will fail. <laughs> The only well, question is, can I succeed credibly enough to entertain and illuminate people on the way? Well, the book has been nominated as a finalist this year for the, the Association of Mormon Letters Novel Award. Um, we yep. just found out, which is very cool. So, Yes, and also the, and also the Whitney Award uh, as a finalist in the speculative fiction category. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm uh, always the bridesmaid, never the bride on these things. So I haven't hung. <laughs> well, I don't have my heart in it, but we'll but see. it would be exciting to win. Yeah, that's cool to win awards, right, Eric? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, so, um, so what are you guys working on now, um, specifically here? Uh, I'm currently working on. Uh, I've finished the, the first draft, and I'm revising a, a short story uh, for an anthology. Um, and I'm not sure if, yeah, no, it, it, it is public. So it, it, uh, it's called Welcome to the Space Force. It's uh, about uh, stories about people joining a space force. Uh, my particular one is uh, set in a far future uh, where AIs pretty much control everything and uh, a human on a planet where he feels there are way too many rules uh, decides to join the Space Force as a way of getting out from uh, from under too, being under too many rules. Um, and it's it's a, a humorous uh, story. Uh, the, ti the title is How to Win a Galactic War Without Really Trying. Um, so uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, th that will be accepted cool. by the anthology. When are we going to see another novel from you after the kids go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I have started working on the sequel to Unforgettable. Um, I, I have most of it outlined, and I have written a first chapter that I'm not completely satisfied with. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, now that I am getting back into the rhythm of writing, I'm going to pick that project up again. And, and so... Uh, hopefully, it won't be too long before this So I'm waiting for uh, editorial comments back from you guys on a couple of books. Uh, one is the third uh, Witchy War book, and the other is a novel that comes out in November. It's just kind of, kind of an urban fantasy, although urban is a very strange adjective to use for a story set in Helper, Utah. But, um, <laughs> it's a sort of a Great Depression-era fantasy. 
Um, so I'm writing a novel on spec in the hopes that you will love it, and in fact, in hopes that I can get Tony Daniel to edit it. Um, so, not that I'm criticizing any of my other Bane editors, but I'd love to work with all of you. Uh, this is a setting that a couple of years ago, I spent six months with a notebook, and every day, I said, I'm going to fill two sides of a page with world-building information, not necessarily related to the previous day's pages. And so I'd go, okay, here are some famous people that live in this, it's, it's a city, it's an old decadent city built on many previous layers of the same city. And, uh, you know, here, here are some famous residents. Uh, here are some historical episodes. So here's some notes on coinage, right? So I have this booklet, and it sat there for two years. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a story. I'm going to write a book. So it is a kind of sword and sorcery noir. I'm halfway through it at about 45,000 words right now. Is this the one you pitched to me with, about the city demons and the... Uh, maybe I don't know. All right. Well, it sounded super cool, so I'm glad you're working. Oh, good. I'm I'm excited. It's it's about two guys who are thinking men, um, forced to live the lives of thugs. One is a one is the um, he is the 427th recital priest in the line, who whose job is to memorize the and recite the epic poem of his people. They're they're preliterate or not literate. He knows a 30,000 line poem. Um, and his people is vanishingly is vanishing from the earth. This is a, a, a proverbial thousand races of man. There's only like 300 of his people left. He's come to the city trying to find someone to carry on the epic, which has never been written down. And he doesn't. He's dismissive of writing anyway. It makes your mind weak. Uh, <laughs> so he's he's smart, fast talking. He's kind of a bard. Um, you should both memorize your books and then spew them. Out. <laughs> Just say them. Yeah. Soldier did with. Uh, and uh, and he's not much of a fighter, in part because his eyes of his species are set sort of farther on the side of his head than some of the other races of men, so the other guy mocks him as a fish, uh, uh, which means his peripheral vision is bad and he has a blind spot right here. Um, so, uh, and the other guy is, uh, uh, is a thug um, who, uh, as, a, as an orphan, was adopted by the cult of Salish Bozar the White, the god of useless knowledge, uh, whose priests have to... Uh, to become a, a, a selfless, one of the priesthood, you have to, uh, in a debate, prove that you have mastered 10,000 useless pieces of information. Not only that there are 10,000, but they are, in fact, useless. You can be challenged <laughs> that they are not useless data. Um, and, uh, and he left uh, because he fell in love. And, uh, and so he's a thug with a heart of gold who can read and is a, and is a self-improver. And it's a story about these guys getting set up as patsies in an insurance scheme. And they're supposed to die and take the fall, uh, and uh, and 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 they don't want to. Uh, <laughs> so, so sort of a, a, a hapless, a hapless character adventure story yeah. where we did some some. Uh, it's a little bit kind of Happen Leonard or uh, or uh, Fritz Leiber, although without the sort of sword stuff, it's not sword focused. Yeah. You know, also sounds a little bit like uh, what's that Coen Brothers movie with the. Uh, a little bit. All, all of that, though, set in like the Mos Eisley Cantina, where every individual you look at is a different species from the one you just right. looked at before. Then now you know what their work is about if you haven't read it. So, and you know something about their process. Um, anything you want to ask, please. Yes. So, David, you mentioned at another convention, I think it was Salt Lake Comic Con, that you know some other languages, including um, oh, yeah. a version of, uh, was it Navajo or another? So, uh, Ojibwe, I spent some time studying yeah. Ojibwe, which is a fantastic language at which I suck. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to find learning materials for, for North American languages because they are almost all 
wiped out. If you Google number of speakers of North American language of of, of uh, Native American languages, north of the Rio Grande, the largest is Navajo with 150,000. Ojibwe is number two with 40, and then drops into the single digits, right? 5,000, 6,000. So Ojibwe is the Algonquin language with the most surviving uh, learning material, and I love it, and I'm terrible. Well, I was wondering how it's affected, like how in knowing that kind of more obscure languages affected your writing and. Well, one of the reasons I learned that is uh, to write Wichia. I learned some Dutch and some German and French kind of for the same reasons. The, the time that passed between when I wrote Wichia and when the first book actually came out from Bain. Let me make sure I get this right. So 2017, the book came out. I gave it to Tony Weisskopf in 2012, February 2012, so five years. So I, uh, for most of that time, I was only hoping the book would come out. Uh, and I committed, and I went and studied some of these languages. So book two, the, the, there's, a, there's a, a, an Ishinabe and Ojibwe character, point of view character, and we get some of his language. Um, and, um, well, okay, let me give you an example. So uh, this, is, this is so obscure, nobody's going to notice. Um, Except all my Ojibwe listeners. Except your large uh, Duluth audience in St. Cloud. Um, so, uh, in Ojibwe, the word for, for dollar or money is wabik, which actually means iron. means iron. Uh, which is excellent, because uh, a piece of the setting, uh, the, the witchy war setting, is that the, one of the sort of distinguishing characteristics by which you can really tell the children of wisdom from the children of Eve, is the children of wisdom suffer uh, adverse reactions to silver. They don't die. Uh, but but if you press silver against Sarah's hand and hold it long enough, it'll blister. It'll hurt her. She, so she doesn't handle the money. Calvin Calhoun carries the bag like Judas, and uh, so uh, so they have iron coins, right? So then an interchange between these these two characters, uh, one of whom is is race as a foster child in uh, John's land, which is North Carolina, and uh, the other is is. Uh, uh, um, is this an Ishinabe guy? Uh, they're sort of talking about language borrowing, and, and so I completely made up the idea that the Ojibwe got their their word for money from iron rather than a much more common silver, from the fact that in long uh, 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 contiguity, right, cohabitation with the children of wisdom, those people had iron coins. So, uh, making false connections between a real language and a made-up history uh, is an example of how the study of those languages has played into the books. Pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. That's a commitment, learning a language. <clears throat> Ojibwe's awesome, though. It's uh, relatively you, few consonants. Uh, how do you keep from overwhelming the narrative with the, your knowledge, so that's... Well, you write it in English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is a, it's a challenge. Yeah. But uh, that's a challenge if the, I mean, if the knowledge is so cool quantum physics like, or whatever, that, too. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I have, yeah, I mean, this is a question all writers yeah. must face with. Um, do, you, do you try to bury it, forget it? Or uh, just learn so well that uh, it's like riding a bike, and it, the the little parts come out. 
They did a lot of research in quantum physics to come up with this idea. Yeah, uh, um, but a lot of the research I did in quantum physics was before I even had the, this novel in mind. Uh, you know, I've, I've been a, a reader of science fiction and science fact you know, since I was a, a teenager. Um, and so I, even though I'm, you know, <laughs> when I, when I was uh, talking with Stan Schmidt, who was the editor of Analog, who, who bought several of my stories, uh, he said, um, now you've, you've got a, a degree in science or engineering, right? And I said, well, yes, uh, political science. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I managed to to do pretty well with hard science fiction, with physics and stuff like that, because I've just been reading it uh, for for years and and absorbing that knowledge. And so, uh, you know, it's not like when I was writing Unforgettable, I came across quantum mechanics and said, "Oh, maybe I can use this in my story." That background was already there for me so to be able to use it. Pre-internalized. Yes. Any, yes. Uh, David, could you tell us about Puritans and how your view of the Puritans have affected the antagonist of your novel? You know, uh, I think we'd be better off without the Puritans, by and large. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Uh, <clears throat> that's not entirely fair. But um, Albion Seed that Tony referenced... Yeah, well, you know, they're different. So Albion Seed is an anthropological history of the four English migrations that came to North America. David Hackett Fisher is the author. And, and he sort of, um, <clears throat> it's fascinating, 200 pages each on the, uh, the uh, Puritans, the uh, Cavaliers, the Quakers, and the Scotch-Irish. Uh, and uh, one of the things he's, he does is uh, uh, sort of make, Contemporary political relevances connect different ideas with of liberty with contemporary politics, you know. And the Puritan idea of liberty liberty was a city of righteous people obeying God. It was it was consistent with lots and lots of regulation, people bossing each other around. That was liberty. Is we're going to tell you what to do, everyone's going to do it, right? And therefore we're free. Uh, and my heart is more with the Scotch Irish, who are sort of liberty means leave me alone. Uh, and I will sort myself out. Um, uh, yeah, it's a good book. Yes. So, um, Eric, you're a master of the short story form. And in particular, several of your short stories have this structure where they effectively end with a punchline. Um, so I've always wondered how you kind of stumbled into that joke short story structure um how that works for you well uh i mean i i grew up my dad uh told a lot of uh jokes and uh with with punchlines and uh so i I've, I've always loved that joke structure um i uh one of my uh one of my stories uh, the uh, called tabloid reporter to the stars. Um, it uh, it originally ended with a a punchline right on, as the very last sentence of the the story, and the editor said, you know, I, I 
I, I love the story, but you've just written an 8,000 word joke. Um, and, uh, you know, is there something you can do to, so that it doesn't end with a punchline just like that? And, and I, I did come up with another scene that, that I think, uh, the, the punchline's still there. It's just yeah. not right at the, the very end. There's, uh, there's some more after it that I think takes the story to another level. Um, but I, I've, I've always loved stories where when you get to the very end, it puts, puts a whole new spin on things. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I've read in the past decade um, is by Kish Johnson, uh, 26 Monkeys, Also the Abyss, uh, which was nominated for, and I think won some awards. Um, and I just remember reading it and enjoying it as I was going through um, and feeling like, oh, this is a good story. I like this. This is interesting. And the final paragraph, just my, my opinion of the story went from, this is a good story to, oh, that was awesome. Um, and, and so I, I, I try to, to give that kind of a, a punch at the end. Um, you know, uh, so not necessarily a humorous punchline, um, but uh, basically, the last line, uh, last line or last paragraph of the story, I try to to have it really have an impact. So, how do you keep it from being the, the classic? Um, it's it's sort of out of the blue twist, the, this Twilight Zone ending they call it, that that can sometimes be something. Well, yeah, but um, it, you build in the possibility of this twist sort of throughout. And then spring it, or, or what's the? Um, well, I, I'm going to use a, an example. Uh, one of my flash fiction stories that was published by Daily Science Fiction. The the title is "They Do It with Robots," um, and it's a it's a superhero story. It starts off uh, with the the main character is on a ship outside the the legal limit of the United States, where uh, there's a show going on where where they are going to reenact a, a human sacrifice ceremony and cut out the heart of, uh, of a victim. Um, and one of the people in the audience for this, you know, after they've seen this graphic thing, you know, someone's heart, beating heart pulled out of their chest, um, says, oh, don't worry, it's not real, they do it with robots. Um, the, the main character has been sent to find uh, a member of their superhero team who has a tremendous healing ability. Um, and so he has heard about this thing going on and suspects that it might be this team member. So he goes, he finds the guy, his healing ability has kicked in. After several hours, he's completely whole again. Um, and uh, basically, he explains that the reason he's left the team is because he wasn't able to save the woman he loved. Um, and But whenever he dies and comes back to life, he relives his whole life in his mind. And so he's able to be with her again. And he has no desire to go back to the superhero team. The, the, main, the main character phones his report in to the, the superhero team. Uh, and they say, well, did you find him? 
you know, was, was, was it really him? And, and he said, no, they do it with robots. I have given away the final line of the story in the title, um, but it has a lot of emotional impact when, uh, when it comes there at the end, uh, because it's been set up that way. It's coordinate instead of... Uh, instead of funny, yes. Yeah, yeah. Or, or both. Yeah. So, any other questions? Oh, come on, ask a writing process question. Everybody wants to know. Yes. So, I think I might be a short story writer who thinks he's a novelist. How do you decide how much detail to put in when, when you were writing a novel to make sure it didn't feel like just bare bones like a short story? Yeah, I, I am a natural short story writer. I've been told by people that, you know, my novel, Unforgettable, reads like it's a short story. Um, I think it's because I don't put in a lot of detail. Um, and that's something I really have to work work hard at, is to, to add sufficient sensory detail. Um, a lot of sensory detail tends to be stuff I skip over when I read, and uh, so that that's kind of how I write. Um, but basically, uh, I think just about any idea can be a short story or can be a novel. It just depends on how tight you bring the focus in, uh, what time, kind of time scope you look at, and, and things like that. You know, I've, I've got a 300 and some odd word story that's about the end of the world um, due to time travel. Uh, you know, you could write a novel about that. You know, it's, it's all a matter of the, the focus uh, uh, for the story. Um, so if, uh, you know, I, I rarely advise people to write short fiction unless, unless they really want to write short fiction because it doesn't really pay. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, if you, if you feel like write, writing something that's a short story, go ahead and write it. What do you think, Dave? Uh, it's interesting. I, um... I, I get asked to write short stories, and I do so reluctantly, usually with a sort of aim of promoting in mind, because I am naturally a novel writer. I naturally tell longer stories. Um, and I I don't know why that is. It's not because I want to add in a lot of sensory detail. I think it's because I want more complexity in the story and lots of people acting and uh, at cross-purposes. And this is true when I when I write, but it's also true in other mediums. So one of the one of the guys here is in my role playing campaign. Uh, I'm I'm the game master, and uh, in addition to what actually happens in the sessions, we have a Facebook group where, on a daily basis, I'm sharing with them information about things that happened off screen. They heard they heard a rumor. This happened back at the back at the homestead. You've heard such and such, it makes no sense. Some of it is utter nonsense or false rumor. Um, a lot of it sets up characters and things they will interact with in the future. That is way more satisfying to me than um, here is a dungeon, let us kill the orcs inside it and take the gold, right? Uh, and not everyone feels the same way I do, but that, that's the story I want to want to play. Uh, the board game I want to play, another, Bruce is also in the audience here, is a 12-hour um, uh, game based on the Wars of the Reformation called yes. Here I Stand. I just, I like it big uh, and complex. Um, and I, I think it's just a, a matter of taste or just constitution. That's that's it, you know. Um, I've never read many short stories, and I sort of write them when I 
have to. That's a little <laughs> that's a little too harsh, but you know, when it makes so much sense, I make myself do it. Well, you're a good short story writer, and no, thank you're, you. You're a good novelist. That is very <laughs> true. That's the yeah. Um, and so uh, both of you can do the other if you if you need to or want to as well, um, which is uh, you know the, you know that's what it means to be a professional, I think as well. Um, and we have two professionals of very very different stripes. Um, it's interesting to see you guys contrast it in this way, um, especially since you both live next to each other, <laughs> physically speaking. So, um, so the books are um, from Eric James Stones. We have Unforgettable, um, which is uh, out everywhere, booksellers everywhere, and we have the Witchy the Witchy War series, beginning with Witchy Eye. Witchy Winter is now out in mass market. Um, this month, and it's a booksellers everywhere, and we'll have uh, Witch Kingdom upcoming in August as well. So, uh, Eric and Dave, thank you so much for uh, for participating in this, and thank you, wonderful audience, for showing up. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, and for asking questions. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 20 Radha stood in front of the mirror, and examined the complicated dress. It was constructed of the finest silks and dotted with ornaments. She frowned. I look like a whore. I thought that was your plan. I don't have to like it. You're such a prude. This is the height of fashion now, her little sister told her. You'd know that if you ever left the library. No wonder you haven't been assigned a husband yet. No other families can even tell you're a girl beneath those librarians' robes you always wear. My arms are bare. We live in the desert. It's hot. You can see my knees. Rada awkwardly bent over to try and pull the silks lower. That caused her sister to cluck disapprovingly, then reach over to untie one of the knots on Rada's neck further loosening a shirt which was already strategically loose in some places and tight in others. You've got to give the boys a bit of a peek when you bend over. Though they were the same size, Rada had never borrowed any of Daksha's clothing before. 
This outfit bore no insignia for house or family. The rank was indeterminate, but still suggested a great deal of wealth, and was designed for anonymity at the secret parties thrown by the bored young people of their caste. Father allows you out of the estate dressed like this? Father pays about as much attention to the outside world as you do. I could paint myself purple and ride an elephant through the streets naked, and I doubt our parents would notice. Daksha was far more typical of a first-caste daughter than Radha was, since she was primarily interested in marrying well. You're not nearly as pretty as I am, but you're passable. So tell me, Radha, who is this man you wish to impress? She didn't want to impress anyone. She wanted to prevent the systematic execution of millions of untouchables, stop a terrible breach of one of their oldest laws, and free herself from the guilt of fraud. But she needed to do it in a manner that would avoid the Inquisition's notice. She didn't know if they really were following her, but ever since her experience in the restricted collection, she'd been noticing more masks wherever she went. I can't tell you. Fine. Make me guess. I'm glad you like real boys and not just the imaginary ones in books. I was worried about you. Passing up marriage all these years to obligate yourself to a library always struck me as foolish. I figured you'd spend the rest of your life alone, reading books, until you shrivel into an old, childless crone and die between those shelves, and no one would ever notice until some junior librarian tripped over your mummified corpse. That didn't sound so bad. It's good to see you come outside and live life. I know our family status comes from father's position, but you can't live your life through someone else's words. You need to do things that someone will want to write about. Daksha shouldn't insult books. This particular idea had come from a book. The central library held all manner of books, including foolish romances designed to titillate empty-headed girls like her sister. But it was one of many the catalogue had suggested under clandestine meetings. She almost avoided it as trash, but the basic idea, disguising herself as a pleasure woman, seemed sound. Though Radha's goal was far different than the woman in the romance, she also needed to meet with a certain man while avoiding detection. Radha covered her mouth and nose with a colorful scarf and tied it tight against her neck. Her sister had changed her hair and put paint around her eyes. In the mirror, a stranger stared back at her. Is he handsome? Yes, Radha answered automatically, then cursed herself. No. Daksha laughed at her. Well, he must be of lower status, since you're wearing a disguise. Forbidden love is exciting, except father is so desperate to marry you off at this point that he'd accept lower status. Wait, is he lower caste? She began to giggle because the idea was so scandalous. Is he a worker? A merchant, I'll bet. But no, you've never cared about having nice things. I bet you've fallen for a warrior. Trust me, they may have muscles, and they're fun to play with for a bit, but they're all stupid, and you certainly can't bring one home to meet father. I can understand, though. Warrior boys are passionate. Wait, you know about... 
Well, you know how everything works, right? Daksha, stop! Radha exclaimed, embarrassed. Of course I do. She'd read several texts on the study of biology, so she was practically an expert. This was an important mission, so there wasn't time for foolishness, but Radha twirled in front of the mirror a few times and had to admit that she was a little impressed that she made a convincing woman of ill repute. Not my best work, but you'll do. Daksha had been sneaking out for years and had never been caught by anyone other than Radha. And that was only because they used to share a room. So, what's next? The trick is to crawl beneath the back fence without getting your dress dirty. Come on. When Radha had discreetly inquired about Lord Protector Devadas to some of her gossipy junior librarians, it turned out he had already developed quite a reputation around the capital. Most protectors chose to live a rather ascetic lifestyle, but it was said Devadas loved the companionship of women. As long as the protectors were obligated to their order, marriage was forbidden. But spending time with designated pleasure women was legal. However, the junior librarians whispered that because of his legendary prowess, Devadas had no shortage of willing companions seeking him out, including many thrill-seeking, often already married, ladies of the first caste. She had never cared for social things, as society was just a complicated collection of individually annoying people, and she didn't like most people to begin with. But as far as Radha understood it, consorting with the lower castes was a bit of a game to many women of her highborn status. There was a certain sport to seeking out handsome warriors. Unapproved relations between castes could result in severe punishment for the lower and public embarrassment for the higher. They might have all been sworn to uphold the law, but technically speaking, a dashing young warrior was committing no crime if he was unaware of his companion's marriage status, and the law was all about technicalities. Hence the fashion of bored first-caste ladies disguising themselves as low-born pleasure women, a situation which she'd been assured added to the excitement. It made Radha question how many of her peers had secretly been sired by warriors. Most of the tall, athletic, dumb ones, probably. The plan was simple. She would pretend to be such a woman, thus avoiding the eyes of the Inquisition, and once she had the Lord Protector alone, she would tell him of the forced fraud. She would simply gloss over the part where she had disobeyed orders and broken into the restricted collection, and she would leave out the part where her father had knowingly signed off on an incomplete report as well. Then he'd do whatever unpleasant things it was protectors did to lawbreakers. Confident that she hadn't been spotted leaving her family's estate, Rada made her way across the capital. There wasn't a single inquisitor spotted along the way, not that she would have known if one had been watching her, because all they had to do to blend in was take off their frightening masks. Other than the fact that she didn't normally attract the attention of leering men, she'd passed through the workers' neighborhoods and into the markets without incident. A woman of her status wouldn't normally enter the grand market after sunset, that's what servants were for. 
Crowds made her uncomfortable, and her mother had often warned her that there were rampaging gangs of rapists and murderers frequenting the lower districts after dark. But it seemed safe enough. Now all she needed to do was present herself to the Lord Protector. He would immediately be overcome with desire, and once he swept her into his compound, she could reveal the truth. Part of her was tempted to hold off on the truth-telling part, but that was the same part of her that had secretly enjoyed the romance novel. Her simple plan fell apart as soon as she arrived at the protector's compound and discovered it was walled and had guards posted at the gates. And, of course, those gates were closed. Radha cursed her foolishness. What had she been expecting? An entrance marked pleasure women deliveries? The romance she'd read was of no help. That man had been expecting their secret meeting, and if she started making bird whistles to draw his attention, it would just cause the local merchants to look at her funny. She had to find another way in. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to the wonderful organizers and programmers of the 2019 LTUE Conference in Provo, Utah. And the podcast theme composer, Ruth Jedkowitz. And the lusty yodels of a thousand maids a-calling through them their wasatch and the echoing answers of their swains who are trying to get through the snow but may not arrive before summer if things stay the way they are. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits to DJ Butler and Eric James Stone, authors of Witchy Winter and Unforgettable, and to our great live podcast audience at the LTU Conference. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.